Well, Merry Christmas almost, everybody. Thank you for coming on this wonderful chilly evening. Great to be alive. I'll take a chilly evening over a, a dead one every day of the week. I'm reading to you from the book of Obadiah. There are just a couple books in the Bible that only have one chapter. Um, what's the one right before Revelation? I can't remember now. Jude. Book of Jude. It has one chapter. Obadiah is kind of the Jude of the Old Testament. This is what it says in verse 5 of Obadiah. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Not with a question mark, it's an exclamation point. Wow, boy, did you get cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How? Again, no question mark, exclamation. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? So that's, that's where we're going to begin tonight. When Esau is searched out. I, um, there are lots of reasons why I believe the Bible, um, without a doubt the first one, has to be prophecy. How in the world could 40 writers over a period of about 1,600 years, most of them not knowing any of the other writers, yet there's no discrepancy, there's no contradiction. That's not just uncanny, that's not just uncommon, that is otherworldly. And um, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ. One-third of the Bible is prophetical, but um, I would suppose the second reason I believe the Bible is because of prophecy. And um, there are over 300 of them in the Old Testament that concern Jesus and more specifically his, his sacrifice. And uh, I, I found a, a, a website where a mathematician worked out the, the, the probabilities for eight, not, not 300, but for what, what were the statistics for eight of those prophecies, many of them hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up, ever coming true. And uh, he, he came to this staggering figure of one in 10 to the 17th power, which meant nothing to me. Uh, I, I have no idea what that is when you've got uh, uh, that many zeros. And, um, but he gave a, a wonderful explanation. He said, take a state the size of Texas and cover it with silver dollars two feet high. And take one of those silver dollars and mark it so that it's different than all the others and give a man one chance to walk anywhere in Texas, reach down into that two-foot stack of silver dollars and pull out the one, the one silver dollar that's marked. He said that's 
the probability of eight of those prophecies coming true. Not 300, but eight. And um, it, it's, it's just, again, it's, it's otherworldly. And um, third reason I believe the Bible is because the Bible doesn't hide the flaws of its heroes. Um, Moses did strike the rock twice. And he was a murderer. And uh, um, Elijah did hide in a cave after he called fire down from heaven. And uh, smartest man in the Bible, Solomon, got in trouble with women. The guy in the Bible called the man after God's own heart, David, the, 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 the godliest man in the Bible, got in trouble with a woman. The strongest man in the Bible, Samson, got in trouble with a woman. Um, Simon Peter cussed three times, but I promise you he cussed more than three. That's just three that we know about. And uh, cut a man's ear off. The list is long. I want to teach you tonight about a guy that most people have never, ever heard of. His name is Ahithophel. It says in 2 Samuel 16 and verse 23, and the counsel of Ahithophel which he counseled in those days was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Here's the message. The counsel that Ahithophel gave in those days was treated as if God himself had spoken. That was the reputation of Ahithophel's counsel to David. It was the same with Absalom. There's only one other man um, that came close, um, a, a man that I've never heard anyone ever preach about this guy or teach about him or refer to him. His name was Hushai. Hushai the Archite. It says in Chronicles 27 and 33, and Ahithophel was the king's counselor and Hushai the archite was the king's companion. Again, the message says, Ahithophel was the king's counselor and Hushai was the king's friend. In, in fact, the second Samuel uses those exact words. In 2 Samuel 16 and verse 16, it says, and it came to pass when Hushai the archite, David's friend. One thing to be the king's counselor, it's another thing to be the friend of the king, but that, that's for another day. I don't want to get sidetracked with that. David, like every great leader, was surrounded with faithful and very gifted advisors and uh, most scholars are convinced that David was referring to Ahithophel in the 55th Psalm. He called him my equal. This is 55 and 13. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company. That's King James. That's stained glass. Let, let me read you. I like the message. It said, it's you. We grew up together. You, my best friend. Those long hours of leisure 
as we walked arm in arm, God, a third party to our conversation. <laughs> I like that. David never signed a document, never issued a decree, never declared war, never signed a, a truce without consulting Ahithophel. We learn in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 34 that Ahithophel had one boy, one son. His name was Eliam. And uh, when, when, when I read that, it, 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 it made me remember something. Uh, this, this guy, Eliam, was a devoted soldier. He was to David on the field of battle what his father was to David in the court of the king. And this is the verse that I remembered in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Bathsheba was not only the wife of a great soldier by the name of Uriah. She was the daughter of another very faithful soldier named Eliam, which made her the granddaughter of David's most trusted advisor, Ahithophel. There are two places, 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles chapter 11, where mention is made of David's mighty men. 37 amazing warriors. There's a guy by the name of Adino who is the first one mentioned. It said he killed 800 men at one time with a spear. 800 guys with, with a spear. Amazing. Shammah, a man who fought an entire army over over a, a batch of beans, a field of lentils, a guy that had been pushed and pushed and pushed and said, you're not going to push me anymore. You want my bean field? Come and get it. And he literally killed an entire army over a bunch of beans. Good hillbilly guy, like bean soup. Uh, Benaniah, who slid into a pit deliberately, on a snowy day, meaning he would have no chance of easily climbing out. And it said he killed a lion that he knew was in the pit. <laughs> Amazing stories. But it ends in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 39. It says, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. If you've ever studied the story of David, you know that David was pursued by his own father-in-law, Saul, the king. He ended up in a place called Adullam. He's just trying to stay alive. But while he was hiding in this cave, a bunch of men came and asked him to be their captain. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it's the greatest verse that I think describes pastoring. 
in the Bible. It's 1 Samuel 22 and verse 2. It says, And everyone was in distress, and everyone was in debt, and everyone was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Again, here's the message. And not only that, but all who were down on their luck came around, losers and vagrants and misfits of all sorts. David became their leader. There were about 400 in all. <laughs> 400 men down on their luck, misfits. <laughs> I think that's what all of us are, just a bunch of misfits. And uh, when you read the next chapter, which is Samuel 23, this is what it says in verse 13. And David and his men, which were about 600, so the 400 swells in one chapter to 600. It's very apparent in the Bible that Uriah was one of the leaders and possibly the leader of these 600 men. So this is when he's running from his father-in-law. This is, he's on the throne for years. So, so Uriah has been with him for a long time. And, and, and these guys, these mighty men, these, this, is, this is David's secret service detail. These, these, they, they, these were the guys that, whose job was to protect the king. And because of that, they live closer to the king than anybody else. Their, their houses, their quarters were just outside the wall of the king's house. They were in David's backyard. And um, this is why he could see into Uriah's backyard. This is how he could see his wife bathing because of how elevated his house was. You be careful when you get elevated. You get a perspective that very few people have. You gotta be careful what you watch. And uh, David uh, saw this woman. Bible said, see, Uriah was not a Jew. He was a Hittite. I, I wish I had time to go into all history of that, but man, is that an amazing story. Uriah marries this girl who is the daughter of one of his respected generals and she's the granddaughter of, of, of the, the, the advisor to the king. And, and it's obvious in the Bible, Bathsheba was Ahithophel's only granddaughter. So can you imagine the pain and the betrayal that Ahithophel felt when the man that he had devoted his life to promoting his career and his kingdom and his dynasty, ends up committing adultery with his only granddaughter and then killed her faithful husband to try and cover up the affair. It's very obvious. Ahithophel was so sick of what he saw and what he, he saw David do that the Bible said he left Jerusalem and he went home. And as soon as he did, this is when God sent 
the prophet Nathan to David's house, confronted him with what he had done. This is 2 Samuel 2 and 11, or 12 and 11. This is Nathan after he had told David that story about the rich guy that had lots of sheep and the one guy that had one sheep, etc. He said, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. There's no doubt that that prophecy was very well known in the land of Israel. David had several children, but one of them was a boy named Absalom. And several years later, when David was old, Absalom rose up against his dad and tried to kill his father to take the throne. But Absalom knew he needed credibility. He needed to surround himself with people of impeccable credentials so that the people would stand with them or with him and he knew just where to find them. Because it says in 2 Samuel 15 and 12, and Absalom sent for Ahithophel, David's counselor, and the conspiracy who was strong for the people increased continually with message. Here's the message translation of verse 20. And Absalom spoke to Ahithophel, are you ready to give counsel? What are we going to do next? Ahithophel, this trusted counselor of the king, this guy that he knew everything, and he also knew the prophecy of Nathan. He said, go and sleep with your father's concubines, the ones he left to tend the palace. Everyone will hear that you have openly disgraced your father and the morale of everyone on your side will be strengthened because the prophecy of Nathan will be brought to pass by your actions. So Absalom pitched a tent up on the roof in public view and there slept with his father's wives. The counsel that Ahithophel gave in those days was treated as if God himself had spoken. That was the reputation of Ahithophel's counsel to David. It was the same with Absalom. Chapter 17 says, next Ahithophel advised Absalom, watch, let me, not you, let me handpick 12,000 men and go after David tonight. I'll come on him when he's bone tired and take him by complete surprise. The whole army will run off and I'll kill David. Then I'll bring the army back to you like a bride brought back to her husband. You're only after one man after all, then everyone will be together in peace. Absalom thought it was an excellent strategy and the elders of Israel agreed. But if you remember, I said that he needed impeccable credentials and so he knew where to find them. I didn't say him and this is why. In verse five it says, and then Absalom said, call in Hushai 
this guy that was not the king's counselor. He was the king's best friend. Let's hear what he has to say. Now you know what's going on. So Hushai came and Absalom put it to him. This is what Ahithophel advised. Should we do it? What do you say? Hushai said, the counsel that Ahithophel has given in this instance is not good. You know your father and his men. They're brave and they're bitterly angry like a bear robbed of her cubs. And your father is an experienced fighter. You can be sure he won't be caught napping at a time like this. Even while we're talking, he's probably holed up in some cave. If he jumps your men from ambush, word will soon get back. A slaughter of Absalom's army. Even if your men are valiant with hearts of lions, they'll fall apart at such news. For everyone in Israel knows the kind of fighting stuff your father's made of. Also the men with him. Here's what I advise. Muster the whole country. From Dan to Beersheba. An army like the sand of the sea and you personally lead them. We'll smoke him out wherever he is. Fall on him like dew falls on the earth. And believe me, there won't be a single survivor. If he hides out in a city, then the whole army will bring ropes to that city and pull it down and into a gully, not so much as a pebble left of it. And Absalom and all his company agreed that the council of Hushai was better than the council of Ahithophel. God determined to discredit the council of Ahithophel so as to bring ruin on Absalom. And that explains this verse that I didn't finish This is chapter 55 of Psalms. I'm going to read you the verse I left out. This is verse 12. For it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my guide, my acquaintance. This is what the message says in verse 12. This isn't the neighborhood bully mocking me. I could have taken that. This isn't a foreign devil spitting invective. I could tune that out. It's you. We grew up together. You, my best friend. Probably referring years later to Ahithophel. I have a hard time reading this because all I can think of is that granddaughter who had watched this king that he so respected committing adultery with his girl and killing her husband. And he could have said the same thing, it was you. The conspiracy failed. Absalom was running. The Bible said his hair got caught in the limb of a tree and Joab killed him. When the conspiracy fell apart, this is verse 23, and when Hithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey got home to his house, to his city, put his house in order, and hanged himself. My lesson is very simple. Ahithophel was so determined, full of bitterness, so determined to conquer David that what he should have done was conquer himself. I've quoted this verse many, many times through the years. It's in the last chapter of the book of Genesis. It's Joseph talking to his brothers. You meant it to me for evil, but 
but God meant it to me for good. But I took my own advice today and studied the context. And this is starting in verse 15 of chapter 50. It says, and when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph's going to hate us now and will requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph saying, your father did command before he died saying, so shall you say unto Joseph, forgive I pray thee now the trespass of thy brethren. (laughs) Daddy dies and the brothers say, Joseph, don't you remember what daddy said before he died? You're supposed to forgive us. Because he's got no buffer now. They're convinced daddy's gone. Joe's going to settle scores. But this is what Joseph said. Fear not, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it to me for good. These guys are terrified. Convinced their brother's going to hold a grudge against them. And if he does, they're in deep trouble. You want to know why John the Baptist was beheaded? It was because of a grudge of a woman named Herodias. It says in Mark 6 and 19, Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not, obviously. She wasn't the king. When you read the story of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob's got the birthright and he's got the blessing. (laughs) The old man is blind. Can't see very good, but he sure can't hear good and he sure can smell. And he tastes that soup and said, tastes like Esau's soup and smells smells like Esau's hunting coat. And uh, come here, let me me feel that hair in your arms. He said, you know, Feels like Esau's hairy arms, sure does taste like his soup and that coat. I'm, I know that's Esau's coat, but that's Jacob's voice. And uh, boy, when Esau came back, found out that his brother's got the blessing now and the birthright, he just says, you know what? When we all go in that big long black Cadillac to the graveyard, we're gonna make sure we de- dig two holes because you ain't coming home either. Where I'm going to kill you when daddy dies. Mom, who always loved Jacob, got him a bus ticket out of town. He ends up being gone for over 20 years. Now he's got wives and kids and herds and flocks. And he's coming back home after 20 years. And they said, Esau's coming to meet you. (laughs) And he's going to kill you. And so as so many of us do, when we're in a real jam, we get spiritual. And uh, he sends everybody else away and he goes to pray. Prays and wrestles with an angel. Angel changes his name. He meets Esau the next day and the Bible said when Jacob saw Esau, Esau ran and fell on his brother and hugged his neck. And it looks like they buried the hatchet. And they did. Except Esau buried it in his brother's bag. And I'll tell you why. Because in chapter 36 of Genesis in verse 10, it says, and these are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, 
And Eliphaz, in chapter 36 and verse 12, Eliphaz had a boy named Amalek. Amalek is Esau's grandson. When Israel was coming out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 17, you've got to understand, they've been, according to the book of Galatians, they've been in Egypt for 430 years. But all of that time was not bondage because it took about 300 years for a Pharaoh to finally, it said, then arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. So as near as I could tell, it's, it's somewhere between 130 and 150 years. All of that 430 years, they're down there. They, for, for over 100 years, all they do is lay bricks and have kids. They don't know how to fight. They have a, it's been over a century since any have been trained to fight. And yet when they're leaving Egypt and they're out in the wilderness, it says in chapter 17 and verse 8 of Exodus, then came Amalek, their cousins. Very first fight Israel had in their trying to get away from bondages was their own family. Sound familiar? And uh, the book of Deuteronomy has uh, 40 chapters, or 28 chapters, rather. It's the last sermon of Moses before he dies. And one of the last things that Moses said to Joshua and to Israel before he died is in 25 and 19. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, and thou shalt not forget it. <laughs> he said, when you go to a place, you're going you're to drink from wells you didn't dig. You're going to sup from fields and vineyards you didn't plant. You're going to live in a house you didn't build. And when everything's good and you get settled down, I don't ever want you to forget what they did to you when you were trying to get away from Egypt. And 400 years later, a prophet by the name of Samuel came to Saul and said in chapter 15 and verse 3, Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. Man, woman, infant, suckling, ox, sheep, camel, donkey, kill them all. And uh, it's, it's an amazing story of the Lord waking up the prophet and said, you go rebuke Saul because I have taken his kingdom from him because he didn't do what I said. The Bible said that Saul killed the Amalekites from Havilah to Shur, which is 1,600 square miles. And when, when the prophet came, the, the Bible says that Saul ran to him, fell on him and said, blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've done what you said. And the prophet said, really? Then what, why do I hear these cows and these sheep? And he said, oh, that's nothing. I'm gonna, I got something even better than that down here. And he has Agag the king in a cage. And the Bible said when Agag saw Samuel coming, oh, here comes the preacher. He's going to show me mercy. The Bible said he straightened himself. Other translation says he smoothed out the wrinkles in his clothes and stood up nice. When they took Agag out of the cage, 
in one of the most brutal verses anywhere in the Bible, it said that Samuel, you cut him in pieces before the Lord. He chopped him up. I remember when I was a kid, they used to have a thing called the Vegematic. They said it slices and dices 17 different ways. And that's literally what the preacher did. He literally chopped that guy up. It's brutal. And there he is, covered with blood. And this, this, this used to be king, lying body parts. He grabs Saul's coat and rips it off of him. And he said, just like I have ripped this coat off of you, God has taken your dynasty away from you. And there will not be one of your sons ever to sit on your throne. And if you know your Bible, when David became king, the first thing he did was say, are there any sons of Saul still alive? And they said, no, but there is one grandson, but, but he's a cripple. I always loved it because it said, and for the rest of his days, that boy sat under the king's table. So if you, I, I'm assuming the king's table had a tablecloth, which means that, uh, the king covered up the twisted bones of that boy. He couldn't tell. He did everything he could to make it right. But there's no verse that said he ever had any children. So Saul's family did die with that grandson. He didn't kill them all. When you get to the end of Samuel... Samuel and his, or Saul and his sons are slain. And in the opening chapter of 2 Samuel, a man comes bragging to David, guess what, I took care of your problem. You know that, that old man that's been chasing you for years? I killed him. I took care of him. He said, you did, did you? He said, he said and I'm an Amalekite. And David said, oh, would you please step over here with me? I've got something I'd like to tell you. And he told Joab, take him out. Isn't it amazing that the thing that God told Saul to kill because he refused to stomp it dead in his life rose up and literally took his own life. Ladies and gentlemen, there are some things you just have to do your best to make sure they die in your life. Paul said he had a mercy killing every day. I die every day. Why? Because when I... I got, I, I'm a twin. I'm a good soul and a bad soul. And every time the good preacher wants to do something, my rotten twin is right there with me. And I'm doing my best every day to kill him. And until the Lord comes, we're going to fight this. We're going to fight this. It says in 2 Samuel 1 and verse 8, Who are you? And he said, I'm an Amalekite. I found this verse, it's in the book of Genesis, chapter 36 and verse 8. Remember, I started this talking about Esau and Jacob. It says in 36 and 8 of Genesis, Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And in this Jude of the Old Testament, the opening verse of the book of Obadiah says, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. This whole thing is about Edom. If thieves came to thee, 
If robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? There's a, I remember we were in Okinawa and these two young converts, they were so excited. It was date night. And they came to invite Renee and I to go on a date with this man and his wife. And he said, we want, to take, just, we want to take you to the movies. And he said, they got a movie here, uh, Indiana Jones. And uh, I don't know how we got out of it, but we got out of it some way. But I don't know when it was, a couple years later. I did see the, whatever, what's the difference between going to the movies and seeing a DVD? I don't know. I, just, I, I saw Indiana Jones who had the Ark of the Covenant. There's a famous place in Indiana Jones where he's riding this horse through these skinny little valleys and it pops out on the other side and there's this amazing place. And uh, this, is, this is the dwelling place of the Edomites. This is the, if you've ever read about Alexander the Great, they said Alexander the Great died very young age. They said he conquered all the worlds and then sat down and cried himself to death because there were no more worlds to conquer. But the truth is, there was one place that Alexander the Great never conquered, a place named Petra or Petra. Because those valleys were so narrow, history says they took old women and rolled rocks down on Alexander's armies and made a human barricade and he couldn't get through. If you read the book of Obadiah, he said, though thou make thy nest among the stars, how art thou cut off? He said, the only thing that's going to live with you are bats and, and birds. History said that the trade routes changed and this city lay abandoned and undiscovered for several hundred years. Nothing left of it now. Nothing left of it now. I want to play you something. Um, I think it's appropriate tonight. This, these are the final remarks of Richard Nixon. The final speech that he made before he got on a helicopter and left, left the Oval Office for the last time. Listen, listen to the closing remarks of Richard Nixon's speech. And when my heart's dearest died, <clears throat> died, the light went from my life forever. That was T.R. <clears throat> in his 20s. He thought the light had gone from his life forever, but he went on. And he not only became president, but as an ex-president, he served his country always in the arena, tempestuous, strong, sometimes wrong, sometimes right. But he was a man. It's only a beginning, always. The young must know it, the old must know it, because the greatness comes 
Not when things go always good for you, but the greatness comes and you're really tested. When you take some knocks, some disappointments, when sadness comes. Because only if you've been in the deepest valley can you ever know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. Always give your best. Never get discouraged. Never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. been so good if Richard Nixon would have listened to his own advice years before and not hated people because in hating others he ended up destroying himself it's Christmas time time of redemption a time of great gifts being given to this earth and to each of us let us always remember life's too short to keep score we're coming up on another year. That odometer on my truck just keeps on going. It won't stop. I remember Karen Blankenship had a Ford truck. She had six, if I remember right, it was, wasn't it six, six million miles? She had six million miles on a truck, original engine. I wrote a letter to Ford Motor Company trying to get Karen a new truck and just dipped my tongue in a rainbow and told, this is about this amazing woman and, and the hardships that she had conquered and how faithful she was to, to people and serving other people. And, and she's faithfully been a, a owner of a great Ford pickup. And, and I just think it would be great if you could help her right now. They wrote me back this really nice letter and said, Dear Pastor Hoffman, thank you very much for talking about one of your constituents. We have many people that have eight, nine million miles on their vehicles, original engine, <laughs> or 800,000 rather, and uh, not million, but uh, evangelistic. Thank God for a good wife that goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't it wonderful that the odometer of the ages has a way of stopping and starting all over again. I love January the 1st. I love it when a year comes to an end and it's psychologically a chance to start all over again. You've got a great gift among you for the next couple of days. Just, if it's needed, clear the air. Don't hold any grudges. Just get it all out of your spirit. This is first church. Allow it to literally be a church of beginnings. Allow it to be a place of first. Just let it go. Because it won't affect you if you don't hate them back. <laughs> Shall we stand? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful to know you, to serve you. It's been an honor just to be in this room tonight talking about you and your word. And you know all of our flaws. 
we, we, we can't hide from you, Jesus. You know every one of our warts. You know every one of our shortcomings. You know every time when we did and shouldn't have. You know every place we shouldn't have gone and did. Everything we touched and shouldn't have. And yet you're still there long-suffering in your mercy and your kindness, ready, willing, and able to run to us if we just make an effort to come to you. You said if we draw nigh to you, you'll draw nigh to us. And we wouldn't even want to draw nigh to you if you weren't already working in us, causing a hunger inside of us for you and to begin. Lord, guide this church. And as we close out this year and get ready to begin another one, we make a covenant with you, with the enemy of our soul, and with any other quasi-enemy. I'm not keeping score anymore. I'm going to let it go. And I want my heart to be pure. I want my spirit to be clean. And I'm going to put you on the throne of my life because I sure don't want to be searched out the way Esau was because there's nothing left of him. And there's nothing left of us if we choose, Lord, to have a a life of spite and a life of always remembering something, some injustice that was done to us. No one was treated more crudely than you. You chose to forgive. It's why we're filled with your spirit right now. And the whole basis of thing is not death, burial, and resurrection. But literally the whole gospel message began with forgiveness on the cross. And so Lord, we're going to do our very best to mimic you and your example. We're going to be people of forgiveness. And we're going to offer that same forgiveness to others that was offered to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray and call it done. Amen. 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 Now greet one another. Say something really good to your brother and sister. And uh, we'll just put in practice what we've taught here tonight. Maybe find someone you haven't talked to.